All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Good. Uh, we have been going through uh, the book of First Timothy, uh, and we are looking as we go through it at instructions that Paul has to offer to Pastor Timothy uh, as he leads a church. And so the instructions are valid not only to pastors, but they are valid to the church as we walk through what's going on here. So we've walked through a number of different things. We've looked at everything from church office to how we teach in the church. We've looked at serving. And today what we want to take a look at is charity. Charity is something that reaches out. We saw earlier in the video uh, an outreach of charity. And God has very specific instructions for the church and how charity is to be executed. And as we talk about that, it's relevant because in today's society, there are a lot of different charitable organizations, right? Are they all equal? No. Are they all the same? No, right? There's very many differences, and particularly for a church that has constrained resources, where we spend our resources in charity is very critical. Right? We don't have unlimited funding, unfortunately, but that's by God's design. So where we spend our resources is critical. And it's so critical that God provides some very careful instructions to the church through Paul and Timothy as to how charity is to be executed in the church. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please take them out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be focusing particularly on verses 1 through 16. Our topical verse is going to be verse 3. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says this. He says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead even while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. And if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. Do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let's pray. Lord God, as we dig into this passage this morning, we ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would give us clarity. We ask that you would give me the words of truth as we speak. Father, we pray that you would please bless us and open our hearts to charity the way that you would have it done. Father, we pray that you would help us to see what you would have us see. Father, give us a heart for that which you have a heart. We may be like you but through the work and the purification of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts will be aligned with yours. Lord God bless this time again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Charity. We talked about it a little bit 
Honor widows who are really widows. How many of you know a widow? Good, all right. So they're not seldom, they're not rare, they're not a white tiger, elusive in the wild, right? They're with us, they're present, right? They're everywhere, right? And I think when we get and look into this a little bit more, you can probably expand what is considered a widow, right? God speaks about widows in the Bible. We'll cover this in just a little bit. But really what we're talking about in the larger context here is charity inside the church. How do we do charity? What's in our hearts? To whom should we minister and to how should we minister? And in all of this, Paul covers this as we dig into this passage. Now, as we start this, it's important to remember that this passage is instructions to the pastor. And as Paul instructs Pastor Timothy, he is expecting this instruction to continue and carry on through the church. And this first couple of verses in this chapter, as we get into it, is really an extension of the last chapter, right? where Paul is talking about letting Timothy, letting no one despise the fact that he's a young pastor, right? So Paul recognizes Timothy's authority as a young pastor in the church, and as we get into the first part of chapter 5 here, what he's really doing is instructing Timothy in how he's to respond. If the church is to respect Pastor Timothy as young as he is, then Pastor Timothy is to deal very carefully with those in the church, right? And as he deals with those in the church, he is to do it as he would a family member. Next slide, please, Warren. When Timothy deals with the church as a pastor, it's as a family. Right? We use that word uh, with churches a lot, but I want to dig into what that really means, particularly as we deal with one another. There's a lot of great things about being in a family. Right? People love you. People take care of you. People put up with you. You call it what you want to, but being in a family is awesome. And we use that context when we talk about church quite frequently. But in this particular instance, we're talking about maybe the less attractive side of being in a family. Anybody have the bad relative? You know what I'm talking about. Yep, everybody has one, right? That one relative that you go, wish they would find a different family. Right? But that's not the hand we're dealt, right? You can't pick your family. Right? And when it comes to the church, Really what we're talking about in this particular passage is how do we deal with the bad relative, right? What do you do, right? You've been in families where people yell at each other. You've been in families where people don't talk at all to each other when you've got the bad relative. How does Paul tell Timothy to deal with the bad relative in the family? What's interesting here is he says discreet, circumspect, respect, right? He uses words like that. So that when Timothy, as a pastor, interacts with the people in the church, particularly the bad apple, if you will, right? he does it in love. And love is the underlying glue that holds this entire passage together. And so as we walk through this and we take a look at this, we want to keep in mind always the idea of love. Right? Jesus talked about it at length throughout the gospel, throughout his ministry. That thought and that thread is continued here by Paul as he instructs the church in how they're to deal with one another. The idea in dealing here is that the family is preserved. Right? If you have the bad apple and you spend all your time yelling across the house at them, you spend all the time arguing at the dinner table with them, is there peace in the family? Not even close. Right? But the idea is to preserve the family. And a family that doesn't have peace probably fractures pretty quickly. That's just the way that things work. But the idea is to keep the family together. Paul, through Timothy, has a heart for preserving the church family. Right? And sometimes that's very difficult. Right? If you've ever been in a church where there was sin, 
where people were being discipled, people were being disciplined, if you will, for sin, it can be very fractious on the church. It can be very hard. It breaks relationships. It develops loyalties. Things split. It can be very difficult. But Paul's instruction here is to keep the church together. And after all, he's talking about a family. Right? Anybody, anybody ever been kicked out of a family? No, right? Your family may not want anything to do with you. You may not want anything to do with that bad apple in your family. But the bottom line is, it doesn't make you any less family. Right? And in the church of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We are part of God's family. So with that in mind, this following discussion is now intended for the church family as a whole. Next slide, please, Warren. What is a widow? We go from this idea of treating in a family to taking a look at a widow. And you go, huh, a widow doesn't really have much of a family anymore. Exactly. That is exactly the point that Paul is bringing up here as we get into this discussion. So when you take a look at the original Greek word, kera, it means someone who is bereft, simply lacking a husband. There's nothing cosmic about the idea. But in order to understand the significance of widows, not only in this passage, but throughout all of Scripture, because we're going to take a look in a minute, God has a tremendous heart for widows and orphans. Why? Because in the Old Testament, God established a system of care. God established a system called the family where women were cared for by their husbands, right? And if not by their husbands, if something happened, then by other members of the family, there was a system of protection, there was a system of preserving, and Paul is expressing to Timothy in this passage the importance that the idea, even if the mechanics of it weren't necessarily the same, the idea of protecting those who are vulnerable and have no protection is aligned with God's heart. And for a pastor, this is critical. Right? Not only for the pastor, but as the pastor instructs the church, this is critical for the church. To understand this, you have to understand Old Testament covenantal headship. Right? And that's not a very popular idea here in America today. Right? In America, it's me. Right? Me and Jesus. Me and me. Right? Very independent people, particularly out west here. I don't like a lot of people telling me what to do. I don't know about you. Maybe that's why some of you moved here. But the bottom line is, when we get down to the essence of what's going on, God established a system that you can trace all the way back to the Garden of Eden where covenant headship is established, right? Paul talks later in the New Testament, he talks about how Adam was created first. There's significant implications for that. Eve was created second. She becomes his wife, his helper. But Adam's responsibility and the husband's responsibility in the Old Testament was to provide and to protect, provide for and to protect his wife. If you want a good picture of this, read the book of Ruth. Very simple, very short, but if you wonder how Ruth ended up with Boaz, that is a fascinating case study in Old Testament covenantal headship applied. When you take a look at the way that Ruth ended up married to him, right, and subsequently how Jesus Christ's lineage was developed, that is a good picture of the idea of covenantal headship. Here you have a woman who was without a husband. Her husband had died. She was without protection and God provided for her through Boaz. Widows have a place in God's heart because they are vulnerable and they lack protection. So keeping that in mind, next slide please, Warren. God has a heart for widows. I want to dig into some passages in the Old Testament. I've got a couple of them written up here. I want to look at the last two up there. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I want to dig into this just a little bit because you can get a glimpse 
of the way that God orchestrated this system in this. Turn to chapter 24, verses 19 through 21. And here it says, When you reap your harvest in your field, and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So in this passage, we see the passage that generated what took Ruth into the fields to glean when she was, before she was introduced to Boaz officially, right? This is the Old Testament law that drives that. God directed this to his people. When you go into the fields and take up your harvest, don't take everything. Leave some behind for the widow, the fatherless, those who have no ability to provide for themselves. God's heart is for the vulnerable. God's heart is for those who do not have the means. Look just a little bit further down in chapter 25 at verse 5. And here you see the subsequent thing that drove Ruth to be married to Boaz. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her, brother's hus- her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So in this passage, we see what? Not only does God care for the physical protection and providing for the fatherless, in this case the widow, right? you need food to eat, here's a way that I'm going to provide food for you. God's intent with this, when you look at the verse in chapter 25, is what? That the family is preserved. Right? The brother's family is to move in, he's to take over, he's to fulfill his responsibilities, that the family name not perish out of Israel. God has a heart for the family as a unit, and more importantly, has a purpose for the family as a unit. And you can trace that thread throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, where Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy here. The bottom line is God provides very clear instructions, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, for how we're to execute charity. Next slide, please, Warren. All right, let's take a look at secular charity. I want to take a look at what's going on in our society real quick, right? Because we have charity, right? We have charitable organizations. Not all of them are faith-based. Charitable organizations from all different walks, all different lives. doesn't matter where it comes from. There's some things that are common threads throughout them, right? What I want to look at in specific is the federal government. Our federal government in the year 2016 spent $2.3 trillion, that's right, trillion dollars on charity programs. It was 60% of the federal budget for that year. 60%. Wow. All that includes Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, school lunches. I mean, you can take I've got them all listed up there. You can read them, right? Everything that entails charity, if you will, from the federal government, $2.3 trillion. 35% of the U.S. population receives some sort of charitable benefits from the government in a given year. 35%. So 35% of 350 million people is how many? Who's good at math? It's a lot. All right. 80% of benefits applications for this charity involves no human interaction. You log online, click the form, send some stuff in, check shows up. Right? Everybody knows the system. Some people may be better than others, right? But the bottom line is, there is a system to provide for those in need in the United States, right? What do we do with this? 
Well, we'll take a look at that here in just a minute because it's important. $2.3 trillion, 60% of the federal budget, 35% of the American population. And what we have here is a missed opportunity for ministry. And I want to take a look at that here in just a second. Next slide, please, Warren. Biblical charity looks remarkably different, not only in the numbers necessarily, and I'm not even going to focus on the numbers, but I'm going to look in the methodology because the methodology in which we deal charitably with people is different in God's eyes. Let's take a look at verse 3 of the subject passage here. Honor widows who are really widows. Interesting the way this is phrased. Why doesn't it just say honor widows? Honor widows who are really widows. The requirement to verify widowhood exists here. Right? There is discernment that is required on behalf of the church leadership to figure out, are you really a widow? Do you really need charity? Or are you faking it? Right? This is very careful, the way that Paul articulates this. We're going to get some further direction here in a minute. But he opens up with his passage and says, take a look and figure out who really has need. Who needs things? Right? And as we do that, we're to biblically investigate. Right? So what this if you take this to its logical conclusion, number one, we have to discern legitimacy in the church. And if you have ever been a deacon, have known a deacon, a lot of times this is a significant struggle, particularly for the diaconate as they minister. Right? Who really has need? Do we just give to everybody that comes and asks? No, we don't have the resources for that, and Paul's going to talk about that here in just a second. But the bottom line is we have to figure out, number one, is this need legitimate? What's legitimate need? Let's go on and dig in just a little bit more here. Next slide, please, Warren. Okay, how do we measure a real widow, right? A real widow is not only bereft, right? We looked at that. She lacks a husband. She lacks protection. But as we get into the nuts and bolts of this particular passage, the widow has no one. She has no family. She has no one to care for her, no one to protect her. And this, not only that, but if you take a look at the context, the cultural context of the time, there's an, there's an assertion that she's probably old enough that the likelihood of her remarrying is, is not high. Right? Not that it's impossible, but in the culture, she's probably of an age where remarriage uh, is probably not an option. And so when we take a look at legitimate need in this passage, we have to determine if there's real need. And by real need, I mean, does she have any other recourse? Right? We're going to get into that in just a second here. But the bottom line is, if she has no recourse, the second thing that the church is to look at is her walk with God. They take a look at her walk with God, and in verse 5, we see the real widow. Right? She who is really a widow and left alone, she trusts in God. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Right? So we see that the three Ps, she's pious, she's prayerful, and she trusts for God's provision. And those are the three things that the church is to look for before they consider someone a real widow. That is contrasted with verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. This is a little bit of a difficult verse here. She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So the widow in verse 6 is a woman who is not concerned with the things of the Spirit. She is not concerned with things of eternity. She is concerned with the things of this life. She's concerned with the pleasures, right? If you take a look at it, the Greek word, spatalao, means she lives luxuriously, 
Right? She spends her time focusing on getting nice dresses, getting her hair done, getting her nails done, getting a nice house, all of these things, not focusing on the things of eternity. And the implication, as we see here at the very end, is very serious. Paul equates her to, be spiritu- to being spiritually dead. And so if she is spiritually dead, the church is not to waste the resources on her. Hard. This is a hard saying. It's a hard teaching. Because why? Our heart goes out to people that are in need. right? But I think if you take a look at it, the woman in verse 6, is she really in need? Maybe she is. right? You ever find anybody that's on charity and they're driving a pretty nice car for being on charity? Got three different phones, they're on charity? This is that kind of person, if you're taking a look at the context and trying to translate it into what we see in today's society. Right? I'm on charity, but I'm living pretty good, as the case may be. So maybe... I don't have that much of a need, or maybe I'm misallocating the charitable resources that have been devoted and dedicated to me. Next slide, please, Warren. Verse 4 talks about how we're to administer this. So once we make a discernment, and these two concepts are integrally tied, once we make the determination who has a legitimate need, the next question we have to answer is who's to administer this charity? Is it the government? Is it the church? Both of those, the government, definitely not. We'll come back and revisit that in a minute. The church, not right away, because Paul squarely places the burden for this ministry on the family. And he says, if you have a real widow, then the first line of defense, the first responsibility goes to the family. Let's take a look at that in verse 4. I love this. This is beautiful, the way that this is set up uh, as a system for protection. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. This is the fifth commandment applied. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. This is the application of that commandment that came down 2,000 years before Christ on Mount Sinai. And the thread continues. So as a child, Right? And, and we're not talking about just young children. We're talking about children of all ages. The instruction is to care for your parents. Hmm. What does that look like compared to what we see in today's society? Children care for their parents? Some do. Some don't. Some like to shovel their parents off to a home, right? You guys take care of it. I'm too busy getting on with life. What's going on here? But that approach and that attitude for people in the church is condemned. And again, I want to circle right back around to where we started with that idea of family. We have a responsibility to our families, not just for all the good stuff. Anybody ever taken care of an elder parent? It's difficult, isn't it? For those of you that have done it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Boy, it can be a real struggle, and it can be a real burden, not in a bad way, but it just requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of resources. It requires an incredible amount of emotional investment but we're not to shirk those duties. We're not to shirk those responsibilities because when we do that, when we care for our elder parents, we honor God, right? And this is the very first line of defense that God lines up. So for you young people that are here in the congregation this morning, put this, put this in your minds right? because you go, ah, oh, that's, that's way away. It's a far, far, far time from now. No, it'll be here sooner than you think, right? And your parents will need you. Your parents will want you And the love that they showed you as a child, God calls you right now to circle back around and bring that and return that to your parents. 
The instruction is very clear and it's very poignant. There's a couple of practical reasons for the family being the first line of defense. Number one, you're old, you're vulnerable, you're without resources. Who cares for you more than your family? The government? No, I don't think so. I didn't think any of you were going to agree with that. Your church? Maybe, right? But even your church, even if it's a really good church and they love you, who loves you more than your family? No one. But think about how that works, right? What if you were that bad apple relative your whole life, and now you get old and you need care? Who cares about you now? Right? See how it engenders this idea where you have a responsibility in your conduct to others in your family. If you treat them with respect, if you treat them with dignity, then guess what? It circles back around. Right? It comes right back around so that when you're in need, that your family comes back around and is at your side and they support you. There's a mutual accountability, and the system is beautiful the way that God constructed it so that we have an accountability. We don't just get to do whatever we want. I'm, I do what I want. You can't tell me what to do. No, when you're part of a family, there's an accountability there, and there's a reason for that. Right? The second part is who knows you better than your family? The government? No, not so much. Your church? Not like your family does. The family is the first line of defense when it comes to determining legitimate need. Anybody ever had a freeloading relative? Yeah, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Uncle Jimmy shows up, never has a job, he's always eating our food, borrows dad's car, right? That guy exists, right? Does that guy need charity? No, that guy needs to go get a job. Who better to point him in the face, point a finger in his face and go, Uncle Jimmy, you need to go get a job. You're not welcome here to take part of this charity anymore, right? Does the government do that? No. Is the church able to do that? Not like you're able to do that with Uncle Jimmy. And so God, again, highlights just the brilliance of a system where we not only have accountability right, to family members, but we have the ability to determine when there's legitimate need the way that Paul instructs in this passage. Right? The bottom line is when families fulfill God's purpose for them in this, the church's resources are freed up to support those who are really widows. And I want to come back to that because that was Paul's instruction to Timothy. It's not that the church has no part in charity, but the family is the first line of defense so that the limited resources of the church can be devoted to those who have no real family, right? who have no other line of defense. And now God's kingdom is furthered and the members of the church, the members of the family are prospered. All right, next slide please, Warren. Okay. We looked at this again and again. Nowhere, not in this passage, not anywhere in Scripture, do we see the government's responsibility to administer charity. Nowhere. Right? That is left to families, and that is left to the church. Why? Because those are personal relationships. And when charity is administered, it's done in the context of personal relationships, determining legitimate need. Right? God is a God of love. and We are to be people who love, and we are the people who minister in love. But when you take a look at it, anybody ever been ministered to and loved by the government? Yeah, some people are laughing. They know what I'm talking about. It's not what the government was created for. Right? And that, that's a whole different sermon series to take a look at why God gave us government and what the government's proper responsibilities are. But the problem that we see is America's system of welfare is unbiblical. Right? Number one, it robs families of the opportunity to do what God directs, right? to fulfill the fifth commandment. Number two, it robs the church of opportunities to minister. Right? 
35% of the American population is missing out on an opportunity for this church and other churches to minister them with a personal relationship, introducing them to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because they don't need it. Right? Government comes in, sends them a check, life's good, right? Off we go. And so there is a deprivation, there is a robbing that is going on under this system, and we need to be aware of it because we need to counter it. Right? As the church, number one, we minister to those inside the church. But as we take this ministry to those outside the church, we have to seek out those opportunities, right? Whether it's homeless people, like we saw in the video, people in need in our community, the responsibility that we have is to bring a personal ministry to them that is rooted and founded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You want to talk about people that are receptive to the gospel? Anybody ever done street ministry? Homeless ministry? See, I did a little bit when I used to live in Phoenix, and it was always fascinating to me. You would think that, I don't know, I went, before I got into it, I, I had this perception that homeless people would be hostile, right? Like, ah, they don't want anything to do with people, right? They're just these cranky old people that don't have a house, right? But what I got to find out is I ministered to homeless people, and I did that street ministry, is that homeless people love to talk. They love to tell you their story, right? They love for you to listen. And what I found conversely is that they got all the time in the world. They'll sit and listen to you too. Right? And I was fascinated by this because it was very easy compared to what I was expecting to strike up a conversation. And it was super easy to turn that conversation to things eternal. Right? And usually all it took is showing up with a couple of spare Bibles and going, hey, do you have a Bible? Here, let's talk about this a little bit. And they were completely receptive. I was, I was shocked. I said, wow, these people will listen. Right? So it, it's, there's an opportunity to do that. But you'll see in that process that what do we have? We have a personal relationship being built. We have a personal dialogue that involves me and that person one-on-one -on -one digging into this book and exploring the mysteries of the gospel. It's awesome. Bottom line is the American system that we have takes resources from you and me through taxes, through levies, through all sorts of things, and it takes them and assigns them to the places potentially at times where we have no legitimate need. And I want to emphasize that again because it's important to determine legitimate need. Again, digging into that is probably about a month worth of Sundays, but uh, it, just realizing the system that we have and then how do we counter that system to bring that personal touch, that personal interaction to the ministry of charity is critical. Next slide, please, Warren. All right, let's dig in here a little bit. Turn to verse 9 and take a look at that. This is a little bit of a uh, uh, I wouldn't say confusing passage, but there's a little bit of disparity in the interpretation of this. But it talks about, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. Right? When we take a look at the Greek word, kakaleho, we're talking about enrolling someone or enlisting someone. You might think that this talks about who we minister to and who we do let be an official widow under the ministry of the church. But there's some dispute to the fact that based on a couple of different factors that we'll talk about here in a second, that this may not necessarily talk about how the church is to minister to individual widows, but there is an assertion that based on the discussion and the language that Paul uses here, that there was an organization within the church, an order, if you will, of widows who were responsible or who assumed the responsibility of ministering to others in need. And you can imagine that that makes sense. Right? If you're a widow and you have time and ability to serve, you would be an optimal candidate not only to receive charity, but also to return it by being enrolled in this order of widows, if you will. 
right? So the idea or the picture here, uh, if you take a look at the qualifications here, is fairly stringent. It's very significant, right? These women, if you dig into the criterion, the woman has to be a wife of one man. Where have we heard that? Well, we saw in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy that elders, pastors, are to be a husband of one wife. Right? So this language is very similar to language that Paul used earlier in the letter to Timothy that talks about officers in the church. And so there is some assertion that here the same thing is going on. There is an order of widows in the church. Right? When you dig further into the criteria and you look at it, she's well-reported for good works, brought up children, lodged strangers, washed saints' feet, relieved the afflicted, diligently followed every good work. That's a pretty tall task order. And so the, the assertion for those that go, this may be talking about an organization within the church, is collectively these women helped with these different types of ministries and had this impact in the life of the church. Again, uh, not everyone agrees, but it's important that you understand the context because we may not necessarily here be talking about just a single widow and how she receives charity. Right? But this is very important. Next slide, please, Warren. Widows who were admitted to the order, if you subscribe to that way of thinking, were number one, mature, and number two, they were godly. Right? And in Paul's criterion, as he lines this out and fleshes this out in the later verses of this passage, what do we see? Number one, it's not for young people. Right? This is for mature people, people who are seasoned. People who have life experience, right? People who are able to minister with godliness rather than being young, impulsive, uh, not necessarily uh, ignorant, but naive in the faith, right? Being young Christians. This was a role and a responsibility for seasoned members of the church right? to minister and to be ministered to in this particular way. The younger widows, conversely, were instructed to what? Get back to work. Right? Go get married, right? You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. What do you do? Sit there, sit around, wait for somebody to bring charity to you, gossip with your friends, chit-chat. I mean, you can almost see it, right? Paul paints a beautiful mental picture here to me. Me, 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 Oh, guess what he said? Me, 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 Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Young people like this, gossiping, talking badly about people behind their backs, all sorts of mischief going on. Why? I don't have anything else to do, just sitting around, sitting around doing nothing, waiting for somebody to bring them the next round of charity. Paul says, uh-uh, I don't think so. Get back to work. And so here, once again, we see that charity isn't just to be blindly administered, and it's not to be blindly received. If you have the ability to work, get back to work. Right? Get to it. What are we doing? Building families, strengthening the church, learning, growing in your faith. All of these things are in the context that Paul instructs Timothy to make sure is going on for the younger widows in the church. The bottom line is these younger widows were commanded to continue in what God had ordained as their roles in the family. And the result, when you take a look at it in verse 15, right? if they don't do this, what happens? Some of the younger widows had already turned aside after Satan. This has detrimental spiritual consequences. Right? If God's instruction is followed, the converse is true. There is spiritual blessing that comes out of being obedient in this manner. You can imagine it. Instead of sitting around and gossiping and getting your feelings hurt and hurting other people's feelings and tearing people apart, tearing the church down, if you are learning, building a family, serving in the church, doing all of these things, the church is strengthened. So Paul's instruction is very practical, 
But it's also very poignant, and it's to be adhered to. And the church leadership was designated to make sure that all of this is happening. So before the next time you go, ah, oh, church leadership's getting all up in the business, what's going on? They're simply trying to give you the spiritual blessings. And in this case, to keep you from turning aside after Satan, thank you. It's probably the least you can say when that goes on. So the instruction and the challenge is very significant. And uh, particularly Timothy, as a young man, has his arms full with the instruction that Paul provides here. Next slide, please, Warren. What does this mean for us? Right? That's always the question that I ask at the end of a passage. What does this mean for me? Right? Number one, take care of charity in your own family. Those of you that have charity cases in your family, you probably have that person comes right to mind. Right? So my challenge to you is not only identify who they are, but how are you going to minister to them? Right? How are you going to do that? Uncle Jimmy shows up, or you're just going to give him a couple hundred bucks in the van, let him take off for the weekend. How can you minister the gospel to him to change his life if that's what he needs? That's critical. That's critical. And so my challenge to you this week, for those of you that God has placed in this situation, is how do you minister? How do you reach out? How do you help that person who not only has physical needs, but has spiritual needs, how do you help connect them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right. Number two, if you don't have that person in your family, good news, you can help out the church. We got a place for you. When you don't have that person in your life, trust me, those people are out there. That's why Paul has this conversation in the first place, because these people do not have people in their family. They don't have a family. Be that family. Where do we start? You don't have to wander up and down Borough Street here to go find these people. Paul says what? Find somebody in the church, right? Take a look around. Maybe you don't know. Catch Pastor Larry after the service. I'm pretty sure he can probably help fill you in. Catch one of the deacons. They can help fill you in. But seek out those opportunities to serve. And guess what? You're not going to some weird stranger having this conversation with a person you don't know. We're talking about somebody that is in our church family, in the family of God. And there's a place for you to minister to that person. Take advantage of it. Number three, right? this is going to get controversial. Ooh, I love a good controversy in a sermon. Work to fix welfare. Right? How many of you are happy with our welfare system? What, nobody put their hands up? Come on. Come on. We have a responsibility. We looked at this last time I was up here and talked. We have a responsibility to engage with our government. The way that we engage with our elected leaders, the way that we vote, the legislation that we advocate for or advocate against. But we cannot sit on the sidelines. Why? Because the government comes in and takes these ministry opportunities for us. Do you think that's their plan? No. It's all well-intentioned. It's well-meaning. But the bottom line is its impact is very real because it takes these opportunities away from the church, and we have to right the ship, right? We have to right the ship. What if we had $2.3 trillion to spend on roads in New Mexico? All right, that'd be nice, huh? Everybody's like, yeah, I wouldn't have to take my car to the car wash every third day, right? Bottom line is, those are limited resources too, and they can be better allocated somewhere else. We need to have a heart for that charity, and we need to have a heart for making it and owning it and taking it as the church as a function of ministry, right? Get the government out of charity. Number one, they don't do it very well, right? Number two, God assigns that to us and to the church, and therefore, that's what we need to do. And then the last thing I want to close with is we need to love one another as a family. Right? And I want to circle all the way back around to where we started. Right? This idea is not some impersonal, 
hey, I've got a checklist. You didn't meet all the checklists. Here's how we don't administer charity to you because you missed two checks. That's not what's going on here. We are to minister and love as a family. So as you look for these opportunities to serve, whether it's in your family, whether it's in our church family here, as you seek those out, keep in mind that we need to have the heart of Jesus Christ. We need to have the heart of love as we minister to those who are vulnerable, who lack protection, and who are in need. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, God, that you do provide opportunities for us to minister. For those of us who are not in need, Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your provision and for your mercy to us. And Father, for those who are in need, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the need. Will you give us the ability and the means to meet the need? Father, not only for the physical things of this life, for the physical concerns, but Father, help us to meet the spiritual need. Father, help us, use us as instruments to connect those who need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would enable us. We pray that you would empower us. Father, through this passage, we ask that your church here in Cloudcroft would be strengthened. We ask that our community would be strengthened as we minister to those uh, who may not be as blessed as we are. And Father, we ask that in all things, that Jesus Christ alone might receive the glory. Father, we ask your blessing as we continue our worship now. We thank you for this time, and we ask your blessing on it again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.